last Sunday evening, I mentioned that we are in a particularly difficult and hard section of our study of the book of Romans, a section where we see the Lord establish the guilt of all mankind, Gentiles first, of course, in this first chapter, and then to follow in chapter two, the Jews alike, for all our sinners all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is, of course, where this first section of Romans will end in chapter 3 with that statement. Here Paul is reminding us of the ways in which God's righteous and holy wrath is being revealed and seen in this fallen world. And as I said, it is a very hard word indeed. As pastors... Uh, We enjoy the conversations we have after worship as they are related to the sermon, things that we said in the sermon, and people often ask various questions of clarification. That was especially true, I think, last week as we looked especially at verses uh, 24 through 27, uh, particularly in our culture, a particularly difficult passage um, as, as we relate to the world around us, as we understand what it means to live as Christians in this openly hostile world uh, against Christianity. And so I enjoyed the conversations last week very much, uh, and I know both Pastor Fisher and I do that, uh, enjoy that after uh, sermons. But I I did want to reiterate, I think for the general encouragement of all of us, uh, two things that came out of those conversations for me personally and things that I hope will move forward in the coming days and weeks and months. And the first had to do with just a sort of a broad conversation several of us had about the real pressures of our day regarding homosexuality, transsexuality, and the issues that we see and that we face perhaps in our workplace. Uh, Several have said that it would be helpful to have a more uh, involved discussion about some of the ways people here at Grace PCA are battling and dealing with this in their workplace. And I wholeheartedly agree. I think it'd be a wonderful thing to have some uh, forum in which we can discuss together how it is we respond to some of the pressures we may face regarding those issues. Uh, we, we know that's going on, and, and several in that conversation you know, gave me examples of where they would clearly be fired if certain things were said about them. And so we can learn from one another regarding those pressures that many face and managed nonetheless to stay true to his word in an incredibly hostile environment. So perhaps a Sunday school class in the future, perhaps a Sunday evening question and answer discussion time, just engaging one another as well in our everyday conversations as the Lord gives us opportunity. I think that would be a good thing. And I know several with whom I was speaking agree, and perhaps we'll see something come out of that. Another wonderfully edifying discussion that I had last week, more one-on-one, is with regard to one of the points of application, my call to never compromise on these things. And and I felt a need to sort of clarify, I think generally, not just to that individual, but generally, what I meant was nothing more and nothing less than calling us never to compromise on what the Lord says about these things in the Bible, what the Lord says about homosexuality and its related sins in verses 24 through 27 and many other places where he, the Lord talks about shameful lust, unnatural relations. Those teachings of God are true. 
That's really what I meant. We, we can't ever compromise by in any way saying that they're not true or that in our culture today, being more enlightened than Paul's day, that we can now move away from those truths. We, we cannot compromise on that, the truth of God's word. We can graciously hold that line as we seek to be faithful witnesses to those who may struggle with these things. And last week I encouraged anyone who may struggle in any of these things, any sexual sins at all mentioned here and in other places, that we as pastors, as elders would be more than happy to talk with you, to encourage you in these things. We, we can do that, hold the line of truth and help and seek to be gracious to those who struggle and others who are enslaved even to these desires because of sin. So those two points of clarification, I hope it was helpful just in this brief introduction to review those. But we're still in the whole of Romans 1. We're ending it this morning with verses 28 through 32. Uh, And uh, because this is the last part of Romans 1, I think it would be very helpful. And I will read from verse 18, where Paul begins this section on God's wrath and end in verse 32 as he reveals the Lord's active wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of sinful men and women. So please stand as we give our attention to this difficult and yet uh, profoundly important part of God's word, especially in the day in which we live. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we indeed know, as we say every week, that all of flesh, all of mankind, is like the grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers, they fade always, but the word of our God stands forever. And so this word that you have given to us will stand beyond this day and for all time. Help us to be faithful, not only in the preaching of this word, but the receiving of it with joy and the obedience to it, we pray, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things I've been thinking about, um, in this section especially, 18 through 32, is whether or not the Lord would have us understand this section, 18 through 32 of Romans 1, as a section that paints a progression of God's wrath over time, equal to man's ongoing disobedience, or whether or not the Apostle Paul is speaking of God's wrath being revealed at once and in response to that one great offense mentioned earlier of sinful man suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I think we can see both sides, if you follow me in this argument. To some, it may appear that this threefold announcement of God giving them up is sort of like a progression. When they first suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God gives them up first to this. If they persist and continue, then God gives them over to this. And if they continue even beyond that, then God gives them over to this. Now, that's understandable. I think people have argued that. But I think, as you might guess, that this is not what we would understand in regard to Romans 1. And, and I think it's because each of those things, as we saw last week, is the same reason for each of God's giving them up. It's the same reason, ultimately. It's men suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, a failure for men to live for God's glory as man was created to do, a failure to be thankful, all of those things we've seen in the beginning of Romans 1:18 and following. And then, of course, as we'll see this morning, men knowing God's righteous judgment by way of conscience, which the Bible clearly teaches, they know what is right and wrong. They know that what is wrong deserves judgment and punishment. And yet knowing those things, they continue to sin. Because of all of this, which is very much the same thing, God's wrath is being revealed. And so what Paul wants us to see sort of is like a uh, three positions, if you're looking at the wrath of God as something to look at and see, he's looking at it from three different vantage points, telling us what this wrath looks like in its various displays among the children of men who are sinning against God in these ways. And so it's concurrent. All of these things are happening to this, at the same time. A giving up of these men to these ungodly passions or impurity of the lusts of their hearts, dishonoring their bodies, 
is at the same time God giving them up to these dishonorable passions where they, Paul illustrates this, but I think going to the, the most clear example of the way in which creation by sinful man is being turned upside down. So God created the male and female in the, in the bonds of marriage, and men turn that in their sin upside down so that women are with women and men are with men. This is unnatural, Paul says. That's another way in which God is showing his wrath by giving them up to those passions. And at the same time, and you can see the connection here, I think, he gives them over to a debased mind so that they can't even think properly about what God has made and the order in creation that he has placed by the fact that he is the creator. And so it's all concurrent. It's one big picture of the wrath of God being revealed, not a progression where God sort of waits for us to reach one level and then adds another sort of giving over or giving up, but one big picture in various ways, his wrath being displayed. And that's the way we're going to look at it this morning because we come now in these verses, and by these verses, of course, I mean 28 through 32, to the third use of this phrase, God gave them up in verse 28. And you can see the reason. And since they did not see fit, the ESV says, to acknowledge God, to recognize him. Let me suggest we look at these verses under, again, three headings. The first in verse 28 is sinful man's testing of God. Sinful man's testing of God. That may seem strange since the word testing is not in it, but I'm really uh, put in this direction or move in this direction because of some of the great insights of Martin Lloyd-Jones in his wonderful commentary in the book of Romans. He rightly points out that the word Paul uses here when he talks about acknowledging God, is a word that means testing. It's a word that means to evaluate something. So the picture very clearly, it seems, is that men are considering God as he has revealed himself. They're weighing the evidence as they view it. And they're making judgments about God as they do so. Now think about that for a moment. We who are the creatures have the audacity in our sin, and that's exactly what happens, isn't it? That's exactly what happens. That we make our own judgments according to our own desires, our own wisdom, our own understanding about who God is and whether or not we will like following him or not. That's exactly what sinful man does. The ESV, I think, puts it well when it says they did not see fit to acknowledge him. They didn't think it was serving their best interest to acknowledge him. And so they became evaluators of God, testing his revelation in creation and deciding, no, I don't think I'll have that God at all. These are the words that I think really helped me. As we think about what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he said, this is the attitude, he says, of mankind towards God. They consider God. They are the judges, and God is the subject of their examination. Ah, yes, we say, very interesting. Let us see about this God. You say you believe. That is all well and good. I will judge the evidence for myself. And so they test him, and having done so, and in spite of this full knowledge which he has given in the ways that we've seen in creation 
and later we'll see in conscience, they decide that they're not interested at all. It's not worth their while any longer to bother about God. Now he goes on, he says, we must remember that the Apostle Paul wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, but it remains a perfect description of mankind today. How interesting it is for people to have a discussion about God, to talk about religion. They examine God and they reject him. They did not see fit to acknowledge God as God or to retain God in their understanding and knowledge. What, he says, an appalling statement. What a terrible condition. That is the state of mankind. They did not think it worthwhile to retain God in their knowledge. They deliberately put him to one side. And man in sin continues to do this even now. I think that's a great insight into what Paul is really saying here in the use of the words that he gives here. That they didn't think it was to their best advantage to acknowledge, to give God any thought, despite the clear revelation that he has revealed and given in creation. And by virtue of being created in the image of God, in the knowledge of good and evil, a conscience that he will go on to say in verse 32, that they are perfectly aware of the difference between right and wrong. But out of hand, they dismiss him out of hand. And so the consequence of that, remember, this is the judgment that God brings. This is the display of his wrath. God gave them up then to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's fitting as men consider and weigh in their thoughts and their imaginations in their understanding, all that God has revealed. It's wise and right for God then to give them up to a debased mind, which is a mind incapable of properly understanding and discerning anything that God has done. And don't we see that? We'll say this often. Don't we see that in our culture today? The inability of mankind to properly think about what otherwise to us as believers is as plain as the nose on our face, we say. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How a man thinks, how a man thinks, so a man does. It's always through the gate, if you will, of the mind that the word of Christ comes. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, Paul says. It is through the mind gate, if you will, that truth enters. It is the mind that receives that truth. And then that truth entering through the mind instructs the heart and the life, and we live out of the truth we believe. When you have a debased mind, you have a mind incapable of properly grasping and understanding truth. Jesus, you know, speaks in the Gospels, doesn't he, of all kinds of sin that come from within. He says, from the heart and out of the overflow of the heart come all of these sins, murders and lies and slander, etc. As you think about this, I just recently, and I guess I was late to the party, but I just recently watched that thing, that, uh, that documentary that people were talking about for so long, What is a Woman? It's genius. 
it displays so clearly if you watch that so clearly and and i you know i don't know this man's faith i don't really know where he stands with the lord uh, he certainly has leanings in the direction of of evangelical faith if you will matt walsh but that is a genius documentary because it lays open clearly for everyone to see that the simplest of questions which god has answered from the very beginning cannot and will not be answered why it's not because they're not intelligent listen to them many of them are it's because they have in their rebellion against god a debased mind they have an agenda that they're pushing they don't want to answer the question because it will root them in a particular view and they don't want that and so their minds being debased continue to run from god they'll have nothing to do with him as he is revealed in his word and so their display of their debased mind is so powerful and clear in that uh, documentary. It's just one example of the ways in which the connection between what we think, how our minds work, and how we act that Paul is getting at here in these verses. How a man thinks, so a man will do. Secondly, notice in verses 29 through 31, sinful man's thorough corruption, his thorough corruption. I agree with those who see this not as a list to be evaluated and divided out. Good luck, they say, trying to do that, to find any sense of what Paul is really doing here. Is he arranging these sins by category? Is he doing something here that we're supposed to kind of figure out these three go together? It's not, and everyone agrees that it, it's not here for the purpose of us to pull out some meaning that Paul uh, has here. What he is doing is showing us in a broad stroke, and it's not an exhaustive list, a broad brush stroke, the overwhelming thorough corruption of mankind. It is far-reaching. It goes beyond what we saw in 24 through 27. Those were examples that Paul drew out, I think for good reason, to show, again, the height to which man will go or the extent to which sinful man will go to disrupt, disorder the creation that God has made. He, he goes to the clearest and best example in homosexuality because that's what it is. It's the clearest example. It, it so un, undoes God's creative work and so we're studying it, not because we harp on it as Christians, but because that's what Romans 1 tells us. But now Romans 1 tells us that, that that corruption goes further than just that picture that he's given to us. He begins, it's clear, with inward inclinations, attitudes of the heart, sort of the orientation of our lives and our sin. They're all of these things. When he talks about being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Some of those are inward inclinations and attitudes that move towards outward actions. And Paul's point again is to give us a list, not exhaustive, but a clear list that says, look how far man's corruption extends. And so he says those familiar things. There's another list in chapter 3 that we'll get to 
in future studies, but they're filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. He includes in the next list things that we tend to see as not really very important sins, right? Gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 21, sins listed here, clearly here given to us as a picture of the depth and the thoroughness of man's corruption. And can we not see these sins exploding in our day as we listen to the news, as we watch the generations battle each other, as we watch young people overtake cities in their obsession for things or their desire just simply to rule? Everything that we see here is is seen in the world in which we live, and we see as well the Therefore, the wrath of God, this is a picture of his wrath, what we're seeing in our culture. This is a description of God's wrath already being poured out. The evidence is these very things that we see. And the last, of course, is in verse 32 of our three points, sinful man's bold approval of sin. This is stunning. This is to catch our attention, I believe. It's not Bad enough that men give themselves over to these various sins arising out of a debased mind and darkened hearts. But it's further than that. It's what John Murray calls the characterization of man's sin that is most damning of all. This is the most damning aspect of man's sin against God as if what we've read already is not enough. He says, look, it's they know what God's righteous decree is by way of their conscience. They, they know the difference between right and wrong, but they suppress that in unrighteousness. And they practice such things knowing that God has said he will punish them. And they deserve to die. But they not only do them, that is, do these acts, but they give approval. They applaud those who practice them. In the last several weeks, perhaps we might say the last previous month we have seen, haven't we, the celebration of what God calls an abomination in his sight. Vile passions, ungodly, unnatural lusts being acted out in public before all kinds of people people lined on the streets of a city celebrating and applauding not only the acts that they are doing, but anyone who will approve of them, they applaud as well. And if you're on the opposite side, they will condemn you and they will hate you because you are not joining in their approval. Misery loves company. They are miserable in their sin. The Bible tells us that despite their outward appearance. Sin brings misery and misery loves company. And they love when people applaud what they do. It affirms them when their hearts daily condemn them. And they suppress that truth more and more 
in their unrighteousness. This is, I think, as Mary says, the most damning aspect of man's rebellion against God. The approval of that which God says is evil, calling good evil and evil good. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes the full picture, and I think this is a fitting way to conclude our study of these verses this morning. He writes, when mankind refuses to glorify God as God, when mankind does not thank him and address him and worship him as they ought, and when in their cleverness they dismiss God and throw him out, what God does is to do exactly the same to sinful mankind. There is a play, he says, on words in the 28th verse, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God did not like to retain them. And he gave them up and left them to themselves. They abandoned God and God abandoned them. And that is what he is saying here. That's why this is such a hard passage. What is a greater judgment than God abandoning the people that he has created and leaving them to their sin, that it might consume them from the inside out and that they might die in their sin and under the full wrath of God. This is a horrific picture. But as we look at points of application very briefly as we close, I want to agree here with, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I find his commentaries very helpful, but he's the only one that said this, which, again, I find incredibly helpful. He, he says that what we have here in Romans 1, 18 through 32 as a whole is a description, he says, of hell. It is a description of hell. You've heard people say, well, being on earth is hell enough. Hell can't be much worse than that, can it? Well, it can be. It will be for sure. This idea that the Lord gives up sinners, Lloyd-Jones says, is a fitting, accurate description of what hell is. Remember, Paul in Romans 1 is talking about our temporal world, the world in which we are now living. And and he says that as the righteousness of Christ in the gospel is being revealed, there is at the same time a wrath that in this world is being revealed. And we've studied what that looks like over the last several weeks. But that's the temporal world. That's the world in which we're living now, where we still wake up the next day where we eat and drink and are merry and happy and share memories and wonderful times with friends and family that can't even begin to be compared to the final full revelation of his wrath, which is yet to come, where this condition of being handed over, given over, will be the eternal experience of those who are outside of Christ and who have preferred in their evaluation of God to love their sin rather than the God who made them. And that is exactly what Lloyd-Jones says. It is a picture of hell. It is forever being given over to all of these things in their most fullest expression 
and the misery that accompanies all of them and the judgment of God heavy upon them. And so as we think of this description of hell, the final picture of the wrath of God, we are living temporally and we know our call, don't we, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we reach the world and as we call them to repentance and faith, we take up, as it were, the words of John the Baptist, you remember. And I found this week a very interesting sort of thing. I love these things in the Bible where you have in Matthew and Luke, it's the same chapter in the same verse where the, the verse is quoted. It doesn't often happen. I know they're manufactured as far as numbering verses, but I found it interesting. In Matthew 3.7, in Luke 3.7, it doesn't happen this way. The same quotation of John is found. But when he saw many of the Pharisees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee the wrath to come? Who told you? Who awakened you that you would come out to me to be baptized for the repentance and the remission of your sins? Who, who told you that? We as believers in Jesus Christ bear a message to this foolish world and we call them to repentance. We call them to faith in Jesus Christ. We call them literally to flee, which means to run with vigor and determination away from the wrath to come and to the cross where the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus Christ. It is a description of hell. It's a fitting one for those who live in this world. Despite what they think that hell is just the continuation of everything they've enjoyed in this life, they have no concept and sense. Remember, a debased mind they cannot understand. And so apart from the mercy of God, they will remain there. But in God's mercy, he is pleased to call sinners just like you and me, for we were once there, to faith in Jesus. The second point of application, I think it's helpful, is to understand the knowledge of God, how it works how we come to understand God. Here in Romans 1, it comes initially through the general revelation of God in creation all around us. The trees, the mountains, the hills, the seas, individuals, people, communities, nations. We, we see it all what God has made. We give him thanks. We worship him as God, as God gives us grace. And then it removes from there to learn and know more about God. So my point here is to see the contrast between the wicked who bring God down from heaven, seat him on a chair, as it were, evaluate him, judge him, decide whether or not they'll desire to follow him or not, dismiss him out of hand in their debased minds and follow their own way. That difference is contrasted, or that is contrasted with the believer whose mind is not debased, but rather enlightened, we have, Paul says, now the mind of Christ. How do we get the mind of Christ? By the power of the Spirit who changes us inwardly. Every part of us, including our minds, are renewed. We now see and understand things as God created them, made them, designed them. We delight in them. Christians love theology. Why do we love theology? I love theology. Why do you love theology? Because it means what? The study of God. We have an endless study before us for all eternity of the God who saved us. 
That's theology. That's why we do theology. That's why we talk theology. That's why we encourage each other with theology, because we're different than the world. By God's mercy, he has given us a mind to embrace, to understand, to enjoy, to delight in the God who has made us. And every aspect of who he is, as he's revealed himself in general revelation and special revelation in his word, is our delight for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us now then, having been redeemed from this futile way of life, futile thinking, remember earlier in Romans 1, futile thinking, darkened hearts, darkened minds, that's not us as believers. We love the word of God. We read it. We study it. We mark it. We love it. And so let us live the life that God has called us to live with great joy and encouragement. The third point is that as we come to the end of this section, Romans 1, it's case closed. Paul didn't need to say anything more. Like a great prophet of old, the apostle Paul, the Lord working through him, laid out his case. His case is impeccable so that he says, the Lord says, Everyone is without excuse, based simply on the revelation of God in creation. All mankind are worthy of judgment and without excuse. All the Gentile nations, which Romans 1 focuses on, but really all of mankind. You can almost hear, and Paul, I think, anticipates this. You can almost hear the Jewish readers giving a sigh of relief as he comes to the end of Romans 1. And they say, amen, those Gentiles, they are wicked, aren't they? Look what they do. They deny God in these various ways. God, look at their lives, etc. Not too much, not too quickly. Paul is going to go to the Jews who rather have been given far more than the Gentiles in the law that they were given, etc., the prophets, etc. They are even greater account because of their sin and rebellion against God. So that by the end of this section, for all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, and fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. Thus ends the Lord's indictment in Romans 1 against all of mankind against all the nations. It is indeed a hard word that the Lord reveals his wrath and the terribleness of that wrath for all to see. But again, as I am often want to do in these places and times as we focus on them, I do not want us to lose heart as we see these things taking place in our own day all around us. We're not, as I said last week, to be given to fear. Fear is not what the Lord has given to us. There is always hope, always hope for sinners because there is always the gospel and its righteousness being revealed at the very same time. You see, not all of mankind remain under the righteous wrath of God. Not all of mankind continue to suppress the truth of God and exchange it for a lie and serve the creatures and worship the creatures that God has made instead of the creator. The Apostle Paul has to be among, if not the greatest example of how God in his mercy transforms a man or a woman by his grace. He gives him eyes to see rightly all that God has made, to seek him and to find him, and to find him to be faithful and true. 
He grants him a new heart by grace alone with new desires, new affections that were not there before, which then lead to a new life of obedience with joy to all that the Lord commands. He grants to him a new mind where he is enabled to think rightly about God, to think rightly about himself and the world around him. He now sees things as God originally intended them to be seen from the very beginning. He sets him free from the bondage and corruption of sin and from its power, and he receives him as a son through Christ, no longer giving him up and leaving him in his own sin and rebellion. How do we know that about Paul's life? Well, of course, we have the rest of the New Testament that God has given to us that tells us about what the Lord did in his life and what God can do and will do for anyone who comes by his grace in repentance and faith to Jesus. But you know, if all that we had was this little section of Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, we could see it if we look. For in the midst of Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one of the most sobering accounts of man's depravity and rebellion against God so that it leaves all men without excuse. That means you and me without excuse. Wherever you are today, no excuse. No excuse you can offer to God on that day of judgment. We see that small glimmer in Paul's words of light and of hope to remind us that God has not been pleased to leave and forsake all men and women to their sin and his wrath. You see it at the end, don't you, of verse 25. As Paul writes about God giving man over to the lusts of their wicked hearts and to all kinds of impurity and to dishonoring of their bodies which God has made, going even further to exchange the truth of God revealed and so clearly perceived in what he has made for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator, Paul suddenly, and you can't stop him, He suddenly bursts out in praise and adoration, and he blesses God, and he declares that he alone is blessed forever. Because they exchanged, he wrote the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He suddenly breaks out. He can't help himself. He's a new man. He's not a man under the dominion of sin. He's not been given over. He's been dramatically changed. And he cannot help but say, how great is this God? Even in the midst of his wrath being revealed, how great is this God? It fills him to overflowing. He cannot speak his name in vain without ascribing to him all glory and blessing and praise and adoration and honor. Our God is great. He is glorious. He is the creator of all things and worthy of all blessing forever and ever. And if you are a believer here this morning, you have come to know that. And you cannot help As Paul calls us here, when he says amen, that requires the people to say amen. It's here because we, like him, have been redeemed by his grace, made new in Jesus Christ, brought into his kingdom. And it's all because of the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. 
for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Even you this morning, if you have not yet believed, it is still the power of God unto salvation. And you can be welcomed into his family, received as a son or daughter, instead of being left to your sin, if you would but turn and believe the gospel. And then with us, you will say, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let us pray. Our Father, we would come as your humble servants now, your children welcomed into your kingdom, into your family, of which our elder brother is our elder brother who intercedes and prays for us, who gave his life for us, his blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Through him we have been set free, and our hearts are set free, our lips are set free, our song is set free. How great thou art, O God, how great thou art. We praise you, we love you, we thank you for your mercies to us. We are undeserving and no better than all of those around us who have examined you and rejected you. It is only by your grace we are here. We are who we are because of Christ. And so we give you thanks and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.